the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. Today I am sharing a special segment called Wisdom Wednesday. But before I get into it, I want to wish all of you a very happy Thanksgiving. This time of year can be especially difficult on first responders and their families because someone has to work, whether it's answering 911 calls, working in the jail, responding to fire and medical calls, patrol calls, the last responders who respond to death scenes, ER nurses and docs, and those of you who may not be officially on the clock, but you're on call, hoping things stay quiet so you don't have to leave your family and go to work, I am grateful for each and every one of you, and a special thank you to the hidden heroes, the spouses, parents, children, friends, and loved ones of the first responders and frontline workers whose place might be empty for Thanksgiving dinner. I want to acknowledge those who struggle this time of year, too. Although it's often associated with joy, family, and gratitude, research tells us that it can also increase stress and make conditions worse for those already dealing with mental health issues. I'm going to link some resources in the show notes if you find yourself or someone you know in need of support. But besides not hotline numbers, remember to take advantage of the resources already available to you. Friends, family, peer support, exercise, nature, hobbies, your faith. And maintain healthy habits, set boundaries, hunt the good, practice gratitude, prioritize rest and sleep, avoid overspending, and remember to focus on what you can control. We are hardwired for connection and community, so awareness of tendencies to isolate is really important. It's okay to spend time alone. In fact, it's one of my favorite things to do. But there is a difference between isolating and solitude. Okay, so on to today's topic, facing my demons. A few days ago, I attended one of my former coworker and good friends' retirement receptions. After a well-deserved 25 years, he pulled the plug. For him, the decision did not come lightly and was riddled with a host of emotions, but that's not my story to tell. What I want to talk about today is my story. I was recently asked during a call with what I hope will be a future podcast guest what my retirement story actually is. He's a subject matter expert in the area of law enforcement retirement and has been researching and writing on the topic for over a decade. It was apparent he had done his own due diligence on me as well. I'd expect nothing less from a former cop. I told him that he was right, and I explained that my reluctance around fully discussing or disclosing the circumstances of my retirement was complicated. First and foremost, though, it it just was hard for me to talk about, and it really still is. I've thought about how I'd share my story multiple times, and I always seem to talk myself out of it. I simply wasn't ready, and honestly, I'm still not sure that I am. Second, I'm mindful of what I say on this podcast because of my current full-time position, but I've said it before and I'll reiterate it again. What is said on this podcast is solely my opinion and experience. I've always been a rule follower. I'm a recovering people pleaser and I value loyalty and integrity, but I also believe in speaking up when I feel very strongly on a topic. It's actually really hard for me to keep quiet, especially when I know what I have to say has the potential to impact or help someone else. Back to my friend's retirement, I can count on one hand the number of times that I have been back at City Hall, the place that I spent a majority of my years with the police department. I retired in January of 2019, so we are talking close to four years now. 
So most of you are probably thinking, well, who would want to go back to a place they retired from? That's not so unusual, right? But my current position houses me across the street with another law enforcement agency. I haven't just avoided going over there. I was actually advised that I was not welcome. Just typing this and saying this makes my stomach go into knots. So yesterday, the thought of walking through those doors was unnerving to say the least. But I really wanted to be there for my friend and I wasn't going to let anything stop me. Those who spoke with me or saw me that day would probably never know because I put on a brave face like I always have. That's what I did for the year and a half leading up to my decision to retire. I didn't say a word about what I was going through, how I was being treated, and the mental and emotional beating that I was experiencing and taking. The time leading up to my retirement sucked. I don't really know what other word to use. I still did my job and even received national and local accolades. Law Enforcement Officer of the Year, National Crime Scene Coordinator of the Year. So on the surface, you'd think 2018 was the best year for me as far as my career. A few weeks after I received the award for Law Enforcement of the Year, I got really sick, like sicker than I had been in a really long time. I had 102 fever. I was weak and developed pneumonia. It took several months to recover. I knew enough at this point why I got sick. The mental and emotional stress of how I was being treated, my nervous system could only take so much and wreaked havoc on my immunity. After that and all that happened the year prior, my husband and I decided that it was time for me to go. I turned 50 and I could collect my pension. I want to mention here right now before I forget that my husband, he's also a retired law enforcement officer and former military, has been and continues to be my rock. Without him, I'm not really sure how I would have gotten through all of the rough patches in my career and really in my life. I started my career working the streets on third shift, then community policing before getting promoted to detective about five years into my time with the police department. Reflecting back, I wasn't really always treated that great by all of my coworkers, so the concept of moral injury was something I'd experienced early on in my career. I just didn't have the language for it back then. So what I mean when I say moral injury is that we expect the people in the community that we serve, or the bad guys, in my case, working on third shift, to maybe not be with us. They may want to hurt us, but the piss-poor treatment by your coworkers isn't something that most of us are prepared for. And my belief system was that those that I worked with were on my side. They would have my back. And when the opposite occurred, it rocked me. In fact, I considered quitting early on and not a lot of people know that. I actually hadn't thought about that in a long time, only when I started to put this podcast together. One of the reasons I was attracted to this line of work was camaraderie and the team emphasis. And because I grew up in a home where I was exposed to criminal activity, drug use, addiction, and violence. I often felt isolated and alone. I knew at a really young age that I wanted to never feel helpless or isolated again and felt the strong desire to seek justice, which for me meant equal parts locking up the bad guys and helping those without the means to help themselves. So my first taste of isolation and exposure to a toxic work culture happened early in my career. So as I look back, I can see that one of the things that was going on while I was in the academy, I was class president. I finished number one academically. And for this reason, I got to pick where I wanted to work. I picked the place where most of the criminal activity had worked and it was like the place to be. I was also asked early, early on to help 
with training and doing scenarios, both at my own agency and at the state training agency. Being a female was helpful too, because we still didn't have many women back then. So in doing this, I would miss my regular shift. And this was a sought after collateral duty. This pissed people off and was one of the reasons I started to be treated poorly by my beat buddies. It got so bad, I wanted to quit. But thinking back, I don't really blame them, actually. I blame the organization. They probably shouldn't have asked someone so new to participate in training others for many reasons. I didn't have any experience yet. I needed to be on the streets learning the job out there with my beat buddies. And culturally, I needed to be with my team so that they could get to know me, trust me, and rely on me. But the treatment was rough. I didn't know any of this back then. I just knew that I felt like an outcast. I felt isolated, alone, and I didn't feel like I belonged. Once I promoted to detective, it changed after a few bumps in the road. I encountered some of the same issues with different circumstances, toxic work culture and unfair treatment. Many of those who treated me unfairly early on later became some of my closest friends, allies, partners, and eventually bosses. The issues back then are the same as they are now. Poor communication, fixed mindset, defensive, committed to being right, and lack of curiosity or asking questions. This seems like an oxymoron for cops. Aren't we supposed to be really good at asking questions and do a complete and thorough investigation? It's interesting that we can be so good at certain skills in one area of our life, but piss poor in others. Again, more to explore in future episodes. With that being said, a majority of my career, I work with some of the most caring, supportive, high caliber men and women. Not only were they great cops, but great people. They had my back, not just at work, but they supported me through miscarriage, premature babies, and some of the more difficult cases we worked. And I did the same for them. This is what I was looking for. After about 15 years of call outs, Working homicide, gang, and sex crimes, I volunteered to take over the Crime Stoppers program, primarily because I was looking for a change and I knew I didn't want to be a supervisor. What at first glance seemed to be a really crappy assignment turned into one of the most rewarding times of my career, and I'll talk about this on a future episode. After a year into my time with Crime Stoppers, we got a new chief. Changes were made, and my office was moved from investigations the home I knew for close to 15 years to the newly created PIO office or public information office. Although just a floor away, it might as well have been across the state. This is when things began to shift for me. Before I continue, one thing that's important to mention here is that part of this whole reflection process for me is to call myself out. I allowed myself to be a victim. I chose to isolate myself further. And except for my husband, I didn't talk to anybody, at least not at first, about what was going on. I sucked it up. At first, when I made this whole realization, I was really ashamed. How could I let another person treat me so badly and when? Well, I did. I will never forget the day I told my boss, who was largely responsible for the disparate treatment, that I was retiring. Someone who used to be my partner, someone with whom I used to spend off-duty time with and our families were acquainted, I didn't want to tell him. He didn't deserve it. In fact, I was on my way to notify someone else, a different supervisor, when this boss caught me in the hallway and pulled me in his office and asked, how's it going? I couldn't believe it, like as if nothing had happened. 
You see, for the year and a half leading up to this decision, I was chastised for doing my job, experienced gaslighting, and no support for the work I was doing. In fact, I was told to cut back on my work so I would have more time to help with other job duties. This would have landed me into overtime on a daily basis. The work I had done is what landed me national and local awards. It's hard for me to say that without sounding arrogant, but I mention it because I worked my ass off for two years, and when I tried to explain this, it fell on deaf ears. In fact, when I explained all of my job duties, the benefits and result of my work, and the challenge of just stopping it, there was no response or solution, but because it was not what they wanted to hear, they began to jack with me. Not my words, his. Instead of open communication and coming up with a plan, the supervisor's MO was to bully, ignore, and gaslight me. In fact, when I told this person I was retiring, that was his first question to me when he pulled me in his office. He said, well, are you retiring because we've been jacking with you? Well, my response was a resounding hell yes. At least I had an opportunity to tell him face-to-face why I was retiring and the only thing he could do was insincerely apologize and get me out of his office as fast as he possibly could. I've never had a problem telling others in supervision my opinion, thought process, or reasoning throughout my career. In fact, as a career detective, it was welcome and necessary. Hearing different viewpoints and perspectives could make or break a case. I am certain that there are some in this profession that don't always welcome this perspective and operate from a more closed-minded, egocentric, I'm always right mentality. And I often wonder if the person offering the perspective's gender influences the response as well. In law enforcement, women are expected to embody certain male characteristics. It's absolutely necessary to do this job, like confidence, clear and direct communication, and asking questions just to name a few. It's been my experience that these traits can often be viewed in men as very strong leadership qualities, but in women, maybe they're bossy or bitchy. I want to make sure I pause for a moment to be absolutely clear here. This is not everyone, and this is certainly not my experience with most that I have worked with over the years but I have experienced it. I realize now that of course the boss I resigned to, he wasn't sorry. His antics worked and he got what he wanted. Although I made the ultimate decision to retire on my own, I was in a really bad place. I couldn't stop ruminating and thinking about how I'd been treated. Did I make the right decision? And something unexpected that really threw me for a loop was my identity. I was no longer Detective Hummel. I was just Wendy Hummel just Wendy Hummel. After my friend's retirement reception, one of my former homicide partners took me up to his new office and filled me in on some of the cold cases that he was working on, one of which was mine. I haven't really been entrenched in cop work for several years. It's been all things wellness, teaching, coaching, podcasting, peer support, and working with other cops who are doing the cop work. But I found myself right back where I was for years doing the work that I love, that I was passionate about, solving crime, living out my childhood dream, and working alongside of some of the great people, like my former partner. I felt nostalgic, a little emotional, and grateful. Grateful for the past, but grateful for my present. I still wouldn't mind seeing that unsolved case get solved, and the idea of diving back into the case file and doing some interviews does sound really fun, and I know some of you can relate to this. 
but I absolutely love the work I do now and the people that I get to work with. I have come to accept my strong connection and affiliation with being a cop. In Dr. Brian Kennard's book, Life After Law Enforcement, he says this, although you may no longer dress the part, the blue in your blood will forever course through your veins and that's okay. One of my previous podcast guests, Sunny Prevetto, a former cop and first responder clinician, said something that really resonated with me back then. He was talking about his own decision to retire early, and it was made pretty abruptly. It wasn't until years later that he made the connection between this event and his feeling of betrayal by his organization due to a critical incident that he was involved in. Making big decisions while operating in a stress response or the primitive part of the brain called the amygdala is never a good idea, Sunny says. But this is exactly where I lived in those days, and I still go there, but my visits are really brief now. Although it worked out in the end, my decision was made out of survival and fear. I will never forget the last day. I had a horrible migraine minutes before walking out the door. A place that I dedicated a significant part of my life was ending. And yes, I felt betrayed, and I now know I was grieving. There was no retirement party. There were no goodbyes, plaques, cakes, or speeches. That first year was rough. I thought if I left, things would get better, meaning my former agency got rid of me, they got what they wanted, and things would miraculously be different and I would be treated decent. And on the bright side, I was collecting a pension. Well, I was wrong. After I retired, I took a new job that landed me in situations where I had contact with my former agency. The treatment not only continued, but it got worse. And to this day, I still really don't know why. And when I say former agency, really what I mean is a few people. But those few people were high ranking with the ability to direct others, give orders, and influence behaviors. I had several of my former coworkers tell me they were ordered not to speak with or work with me. I was repeatedly asked what I did to piss off the boss. First of all, I don't really know, but I have theories. But more importantly, shouldn't the questions asked be more like, well, what really happened? And why did you feel the need to retire? And what were the circumstances that led you to feeling like you couldn't stay anymore? I say this because I'm not the only one who retired like this. The organization isn't a person. It's the people in the leadership positions that should know better. Not everyone will retire happily. And some situations can't be avoided, but I see organizations losing good people all the time, losing valuable institutional knowledge and not prioritizing the mental and emotional health of their people. This might sound crazy, but what comes to mind when I reflect back on all of this is thank you. I mentioned I never wanted to promote to sergeant, and when I took over the Crime Stoppers position, I was looking for a change in my career. But I didn't know what it was. I thought, well, maybe I'd go, want to go work at training, help with recruitment, help do backgrounds to hire new officers. I also began to introduce wellness concepts at my former agency. I was teaching yoga for first responders, procured a grant to teach resilience, and I joined our SISM team, Critical Incident Stress Management. Since 2015, I have been researching wellness concepts, resilience, holistic wellness, peer support, and knew then that I had the same passion that I had always to help the community. This now shifted, and I wanted to help my coworkers, my brothers and sisters. I wouldn't be where I am today personally or professionally without my past. 
Yes, I have copious amounts of notes and details on all that occurred, but I think I shared enough for you to understand what I experienced. Plus, it's time for me to let it go. The point I'm trying to make here is that all the work I've done has landed me in a place I would have never imagined I'd be. As far as I have come, I still fall back. In fact, I thought I was going to lose it at my friend's retirement, but I rely on my resources and know all the hard work that I have done facing my demons, dealing with uncomfortable and difficult emotions, and dealing with those who want me to fail is something that I can overcome. I am resilient and so are you. Life is a journey full of opportunities and challenges, and retirement is a big life event, a milestone that should be viewed no different than other ceremonies that we hold in our culture at large, weddings, funerals, jobs, job promotions, high school and college graduations, and baby showers. Our first responder culture is no different. We hold academy graduations, promotion ceremonies, retirement ceremonies, Human beings are social, and we like to share moments of joy with each other. These ceremonies bring people together to mark and celebrate these milestones in our life. And by choice, I didn't experience this. But no one at my former agency paid attention or noticed either. We do such a good job of putting time, care, and effort into training recruits even beyond in their field training. But what do we do to prepare people exiting the profession And I'm not referring to pension or savings if that even applies. There is more research being done on first responder mental health. Dr. John Violanti found in a study that he conducted that most suicides happen within five years of retirement eligibility when the anxiety is the highest. Another found suicide rates among first responders are 34.6 higher than the general population a most occur before leaving, something referred to as the limbo state effect. Front loading before people walk out the door and literally get locked out and can't come back in is absolutely what we need to do. Some people do a really good job at holistically preparing for their retirement, but in my experience, those people have been very intentional about the process. Unfortunately, most I know, including myself and my husband, don't retire well, and that's a shame. The reason I share this, I put out this podcast, and really everything I do is in service of others, primarily first responders and their families and others that work the front lines. When I first started down this path, if I listened to others, I would have already given up. Back then, I saw a need and a gap in our profession, and now I see another. A quote by Marcus Aurelius has helped to encourage me when I find myself pulling back because talking about this is still very hard for me. You can also commit injustice by doing nothing. I did nothing for a long time, and now I want to do something to change the way that we retire. I'm the poster child for how not to retire. A lot of my friends are either retired or getting ready to. I see the need, and I'm working on a program to support the frontline retired population, those getting ready to retire and those that already have. I'm also planning multiple segments on the podcast in 2023 that will address this topic and On December 10th, I'm joining my colleagues at Pause First in Branson, Missouri for our first free retirement workshop, so stay tuned. As always, if you found value in this episode, please share, subscribe, and give us a review. I want to hear from you. Feedback, comments, questions, and suggestions for future topics are welcome. And remember, we are better together. 